0: John, not only do we get to pray for churches we partner with, but also organizations we support, and I think that's really important. Um, Kingdom Causes Bellflower is one of them. When I say we support, I mean we as a church, which means part of your giving goes to supporting organizations in our community, and so you're going to hear about a few of those coming up as we pray over the next few Sundays. And so, yeah, if you want more information about any of the organizations that we talk about, come see me. Uh, Come see one of our elders, Uh, and we would love to point you in that direction. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to start a new book. We're going to spend four or five weeks in 1 Timothy, then we will be into the book of Revelation. And so, uh, 1 Timothy is what we'll call one of the later letters of Paul. And so while you're standing there, by the way, there's a Bible on the seat in front of you, like kind of where your feet are. And if you would go there, it's page 991, Uh, so I can help you get there. But you're going to want to follow along, want to be comfortable with Scripture, read what the Bible says. Uh, For sure, you don't want to trust me. You want to see what it says in Scripture, right? right. All right, you guys agreed way too fast on that one. All right, (laughs) so this is a later letter of Paul. So we spent over the summer, we spent, I know it's still summer, but over the summer, We did the first four, uh, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, we did four of the early letters that Paul wrote. And then there are middle letters and later letters, they're not, uh, you, you can figure it out, right? Ones he wrote earlier in ministry, ones he wrote later in ministry, and then the ones he wrote in the middle of ministry, right? It's not rocket science, right? So early in ministry as he is helping to establish churches. He's been planting churches and writing letters to churches and circling back and visiting the churches that he helped begin and so then he'll write them letters and encourage them and strengthen them or deal with issues that they have Gospel issues primarily and the early letters all kind of are shaped like this the beginning is kind of uh, is, is about the gospel particular things about the gospel when we say gospel here we mean the entirety of the work of Jesus the incarnation, the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the resurrection, the ascension, the pouring out of his spirit on us, the church, and even the very hope that we have as he will one day return. All of that and how all of that applies to all of life. When we say gospel, we don't mean something that introduces you to Jesus back here and then something else takes over, but that the gospel is the very power in which we stand as Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And so early letters, establishing the gospel, making sure that the church gets the gospel right, and that's typically the opening chapters of those short, early letters. And then the second half will be, well, how do you live in response to the gospel? So what is the gospel? How do I respond to it? How do I live in response to it? The middle middle letters typically deal with crises that are going on in the church, persecution of the church, things like that. And then the later letters are written to two men, Two letters to a man named Timothy. We're going to see one of them. And the other is to a man named Titus. Both are disciples or protégés or students of the Apostle Paul. Both were with him, traveled with him, as he went about sharing the gospel, establishing churches, raising up elders, handing off, and leaving and going to do it again. And there's this particular church that Paul is incredibly connected to. It's the church in Ephesus. So we have the book of Ephesians, right? When we get to the book of Revelation, there'll be a letter or there'll be some comment to the church in Ephesus. But at one point, the church in Ephesus that Paul spent time with, in fact, I'll say it's special because of this. Paul would go into a city, share the gospel, lead people to Jesus, disciple them, raise up some elders and hand off, and he did it incredibly quick often. You can kind of read through some of that. Acts 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, that area. Then in Acts 18, Paul goes into Ephesus, and he ends up spending three years in this city of Ephesus, and Ephesus was a massive city, a lot like Long Beach, just this hub of trade and and culture and life, and, and just this place where so much happens, where diversity and commerce and all these things exist. And he spends three years there establishing a church. And so his heart is given to that church. He loves and cares for that church. He spent many, many days with them. So he writes a letter to them later. He also now sends Timothy to the church in Ephesus to put things back in order. So the church has had its struggles. And all churches have their struggles. Right? Right? Whether it be just normal life or whether you go through a pandemic together, right? This church looks different on the other side of the pandemic than it did going into it. Just true, right? Most churches look different. Some in positive ways, some in negative ways, some just, just look different. And so he is writing to them because they have lost some of their way, if you will. He established them. He spent three years with them. He discipled their leadership. He led many of them to faith. He baptized many of them. And then as the church has other people come in and influence it in wrong ways, he writes a letter back to them like, hey, you guys have wandered off track. Again, a gospel issue. So he sends one of his closest friends, one of his nearest and dearest disciples, he sends Timothy to Ephesus to spend time with them. what we'll see is we're going to do just kind of an overview of this book over four or five weeks about how they get that church, what Paul says they need to do to get back on track. So here's a main idea for today, sound doctrine. One of the distinguishing marks of a true church is sound doctrine. Orthodoxy, meaning right belief, leads to orthopraxy, right living. We have have belief problems, not behavior problems. You hear me say that a lot. If you believe the fire is dangerous, you will not touch it. Your belief will drive your action. If you believe the little stuff inside that plug on the wall is not dangerous, you're likely to stick your finger in it and, and, and learn that you were wrong. Yeah? Done it. <laughs> I can speak to that with some level of authority as a kid. I didn't listen to much. I just did it, right? That's why I have no hair. So it, it's, it's, yeah. If you believe that God calls you, the, the, the things that God calls you both to and away from, are actually best for you, not just rules you get to pick and choose from. But if you believe that God's call on your life and how he has created you to live is actually best for you, you will live a lot more like that than if you think these are just random rules that may be outdated and don't apply to you. You with me? We have belief problems, not behavior problems. Right doctrine, sound doctrine, is about right belief. Right belief will drive right living. Orthodoxy will drive orthopraxy. And that's where he's going to begin with Timothy today. So 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So Paul, again, is our author. We know that same author as our last series. Early letter versus later letter. This is much later. And as he gets later in life, something I didn't get a chance to say really is, as he gets later in life, it is more critical for him to make sure that the church is established. What I mean by that is, as as he nears the end of his life, when he writes this, he is imprisoned for his faith. He will go on to give his life, literally, His life will be taken because of his faith. He will be beheaded for the gospel. And as he knows that that is coming near, as he's imprisoned in Rome, and he knows that the end is coming, his mission turns from leading people to Jesus to really making sure that the church is on solid footing. Each church, each local body really understands themselves in light of the gospel. Because it is less important about an individual than it is about a local church. The local church will disciple and reach and evangelize the individuals. The church becomes his priority. He's been writing to the churches all along. But as his later life comes in, as he knows he's nearing the end, his focus narrows to how do we really establish, strengthen, make sure that the next generation has the right church, right? The right understanding of what it means to be a church. The doctrine is called an ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And so he writes with this intention. Verse two, he says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. You're going to see a lot of kind of true and false contrast in what he says today. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes a lot about, addresses letters a lot to the specific people and specific issues that he's going to deal with. He's very clear up front. And so he was writing this to Timothy, who is pastoring now the church in Ephesus at Paul's request. Paul sent him there to care for them. And he calls him my true child in the faith. I'm going to tell you a story. It was 2007. It was April 2007. 2007. Many of you know Pastor Vinny Hanke. Uh, Pastor Vinny is a good friend of mine, uh, and uh, he is now the lead pastor of a church in Idaho, oddly enough, where we have family here and there, odd. Just odd that you find that out. It's a small world, right? And so one of our elders here has actually got a brother who's an elder with him. Really cool. Some of our leaders that have left here, other elders and pastors that have moved, moved to the same city and are now Worshiping and serving again with Pastor Vinny. If you know him, he's preached here many times. And he and I met in 2007 when I handed off a church plant that I had planted in Huntington Beach. And I went up there because this church was struggling. It was hemorrhaging people and money, it was all over the place. And they had reached out. And over time, I'd built a relationship with him and moved there. I said, No, by the way, I moved from Huntington Beach to Hesperia. It took some convincing. Most of you know Pastor Mike Larson, who pastors encounter men. We were just all together yesterday for our men's breakfast. Those two pastors came out of that church. And on my first day there in 2007, it was April 1st, 2007. I know, because they tried to prank me for April Fool's Day. So that's how I remember it. Then he walks up to me and he says, listen, I'm a Timothy in search of a Paul. And he became my right hand in that church. So much so that Alex and I will talk and he'll call Vinny just like, okay, working with Jeff is not easy. How did you do that, right? (laughs) But a lot of you know Pastor Vinny and he is a dear friend of this church. Men, we'll see him at the men's retreat, come to find out. So that's really, really cool. Uh, Some of our elders from then will be joining us. This is... Paul's true son in the faith. Those words are powerful. As both Pastor Vinnie and Pastor Mike, call me their spiritual father. And that's hard to hear sometimes. Just knowing, okay, am I up to that job? Did I do well? Can I care for them? How do I care for them? Paul is writing to someone he loves dearly and trusts implicitly with this church that is so a part of his heart. So he writes this letter to him. He says, "Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You know that Paul uses that greeting in every letter, right? Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. And, and again, it echoes his themes for the book. Grace is the gospel that he shares in the opening chapters. And then peace, how do we live that out? He uses that to the pastor, young Timothy. Young, by the way, when they call him young, he's about 40 at this point. When he says, when he writes this letter to me, he says grace, mercy, and peace. He adds the word mercy. We're gonna put this on the screen for you. Grace is about a correct gospel. Peace flows from a correct gospel. In other words, living in that gospel. Paul adds mercy to remind Timothy that gospel change comes slowly over time and requires mercy. There's anything I learn more and more as time goes on in ministry, being a pastor over the last 20 years, is people change slowly. Sometimes we have growth spurts and sometimes we go backwards and the gospel takes time. It roots itself in our lives, but it takes time. Verse 3 says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain Macedonia. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he reminds them, remember last we saw each other, I sent you that way, I went that way, your job was to go back to the church that Paul loved so dearly and to set things in order. One of them be to to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's his, remember what I said, don't let people preach another gospel. Don't let people add or subtract from the gospel of Jesus. Don't add rules to it, don't take away what it is, don't change it. Jesus did just fine, leave it alone. So he sends him back. Listen, there's other people that are coming in and teaching in this church, and they're teaching them false doctrine. I want you to go and correct that. See, our influences often don't come in the form of someone teaching here. That's something we, especially as your elders, we take very seriously. Like, who preaches here? What is going to be said? Who teaches our kids or our youth or or, our women or men, whatever? because of this. But oftentimes, we don't have to have somebody saying it to you, because culture teaches us different doctrine, right? Things that are completely contrary to what we might see in scripture are being fed to us all day long, every day, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in overt ways. Here's some things that Paul's going to tell Timothy As, like, kind of a series of things that will help foster change back to the gospel. He's going to talk about clarity of a preached gospel. He's going to talk about praying together as the church, having qualified leaders in the church, overcoming trials in church life, and fighting only for what matters the most. He will call him to those things in this book, and we'll see those. We've really, we've really tried. To make a pivot, and I'm sure you see it, towards more prayer together as a church. Our elders are, are, have doubled up our meetings. We've added an entire other meeting. Some of you guys got an email. We're working through a list. Some of you guys got an email and said, Hey, we want to be praying for you. We're meeting on Monday night. How can we be praying for you? We added another meeting just to make sure that we could spend time, more time, in prayer together, praying for our church. Alex is leading us through. A corporate prayer. Every Sunday, one of our elders is coming up praying for someone in our community that we partner with, that we care about, that is not necessarily a part of our church, that we know that God has called us to do, to pray, to seek him, to hear his voice, and to share our hearts with him. So I'll read again. Verse 3, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He gives; he speaks directly into, and we have, to, we have to know this sometimes. We're going to see a list of ways that they're not doing that. It's not a comprehensive list, and it's not a list of worse things. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he's going to give them real-time examples in Ephesus of things that they're doing that are not glorifying to God, that is not God's best for them, that are actually hurting them and not helping them. So he begins with, now there are some that have come in to teach you, and they're teaching you things that are false doctrine. They're teaching you other ways to live in this world that are apart from Jesus. He calls it different doctrine. He says myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. And so rather than pull apart Ephesian culture... I want to talk about just some ways that that takes place in our world today. So I made a, just a quick list. So what the Ephesians are doing are seeking direction in their life in ways that are not seeking God. Praying to God, understanding scripture, listening, relying on the Holy Spirit. Here are some ways we do that. Astrology and horoscopes. I'm, going to, I'm trying to offend everybody. We're going for everybody We'll see. Mediums and psychics, right? These things exist. To, hey, what do I do? How do I pursue this life? What can I, what about this? Will my dead aunt somebody or this? Will they tell me how to do this? I need a decision on how to go this way. And so we're looking for these things, not asking Jesus, right? Not relying on the Holy Spirit. So healing crystals and Reiki, all kinds of kind of energy forms of healing instead of seeking God for healing, which by the way, we're all going to have something, right? This life will end. Something will cause that. We may be in this life and endure some suffering, right? That's a reality of this life. Well, we don't want that. I don't want that. You don't want that. But are we willing to leave what God has called us to to seek that? New age stuff. Manifesting one's self-destiny as if you're in charge somehow. Living your truth. As if truth is relative and truth isn't just truth, but well, that's self-selecting. OK, this is why this is my identity, and no matter what anybody says, no matter what God says, this is my truth. We just say that out loud, and we're like, "Oh, what if my truth completely contradicts your truth? Well, clearly, mine is right, right? I mean, that's how we live. Instead of God's truth, unchangeable truth, timeless truth. Christians struggle with this. There's name it and claim it. Churches and prosperity doctrine churches. Churches that will teach you if you're sick and you haven't been healed, it's because of your sin or someone in your family sin. Generational sin is something that, and, and, and there's as if you can manipulate everything. If you just say the right words, you can, get, you can handle this. Or prosperity doctrine. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And the way to get there is just send more money. It's funny how it always comes down to that. Somebody's getting wealthy. I'm a part, I, I teach at a Christian school, and, and we had this thing go out, it was, um, it was last year, last school year, and as, the, as it turned to 2022, um, and, and you know, some of this is irrelevant to some of you, some of it hits home, uh, Chinese New Year, the year of the tiger, I think year of the tiger, anybody, is that right? Okay, so maybe it's irrelevant to everybody. So you're the tiger, but it is, it's a Chinese form of astrology. It's a Chinese form of living towards something, of understanding wealth. The same idea, you know, feng shui, whatever it is, like we got to organize this. To All of it gets away from following Jesus and trusting in Jesus that what you have is what God has given you, and if you need direction, you seek God. This thing was sent out, and I just... I, don't, I try not to complain a lot. Well, uh, because I get lots of complaints. But maybe I'm just... So, but I emailed privately, I'm like, hey, so why would we do this? Like, I get trying to be inclusive and in all this, but why, why would we do this? But it's this, devoting ourselves to myths and endless genealogies, the things that promote speculations, rather than, verse 4, the stewardship from God that is by faith. Rather than living your life and stewarding your life by faith in Jesus, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, we'll put this on the screen, calling out false belief. Paul tells Timothy that followers of Jesus seek God's direction through the Holy Spirit only and not through other created things. There's no other guidance that is true. Remember, if you're looking up to the stars to figure out how to live your life, just remember the one who created the stars, And hit him up because he wants to talk, right? Romans is really clear in Romans chapter 1. I write about this in my book that we trade in worship of the creator for worship of created things. That's what Paul is writing to the church in Rome about. Same idea. Fast forward 2,000 years. Same idea. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul does this a lot. It was a couple chapters ago. And he says, if you are in Christ, and he says, I desire that you would have a sincere faith. He, instead of just telling everybody, hey, you're all good. Don't worry about it. You're all good. Which the modern church tends to do. He leaves room. You may be following Jesus. You may not be. You may be in Christ or you might not be. You may have a sincere faith or you may be sitting here because your spouse dragged you to church. I don't know. But I want you to have a sincere faith. Paul always leaves room for the fact you may not. And then he calls us towards what it looks like to live truly in Jesus. And it's not just going to church on Sundays. Although it's a great place to start, that's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. So a sincere faith, we'll put this up. Paul questions people's sincerity of faith based on God's truth. In our modern don't judge me culture, challenging one another towards truth has been lost. It's two generations, if not three, if it didn't start with Gen Xers like me, where truth became relative. Well, what might be true for me, not true for you? Or what might be true for you, not true for me? No, it's either truth or it's not. And and for today, it's either God's truth or it's just not true. And that God, I I, I keep trying ways that are not God's ways, trying to figure out there's other ways. and, And every time I'm back to the point that God's right and I'm wrong. And I've tried a whole host of other ways. Keep figuring out God is right. And hopefully driving me towards the next decision to go, okay. So far, God's been right every time. I think I can trust him this next time, right? Truth is truth. Verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, right? By leaving the truth, by wandering into other things, they're swerving into wasted time, vain discussion. Words that can't help you. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. In other words, they desire to teach, but they don't know. They don't understand. They can't possibly, they're not giving their lives over to God's truth. He says, either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Here's what I can tell you that is different today, than, and it hasn't always been like this. If you're a part of the iPhone generation who's never had a world without a smartphone, here's something that is different. Everybody speaks incredibly confidently about everything today. Almost three years ago, when a pandemic hits, I didn't know how many epidemiologists and medical specialists we had. (laughs) They're all on social media, though. Speaking authoritatively about what is and what isn't. Why would we speak so confidently about things we just don't know? Or my challenge would be, or about things that someone else has said on social media. Or in a church. Why do I ask you to open the Bible all the time? I actually want you to read it. Beyond today, that'd be really good, but let's at least read it today. People are like, why do you teach so much scripture on one Sunday? I'm like, well, if my message is like 60, 70% scripture, 60 or 70% of it's going to be good. The other 30 is just a complete, I don't know, but the scripture part's gonna be good. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things in which they make confident assertions. Insert politician here. I'm not even particular, I don't care, pick a team, right? Certain persons swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion. That's what every political conversation sounds like to me today. A stinking waste of time. Listen, we have the privilege to vote. We live in a free country. People defend that, and we've got good and godly people that run into burning buildings to save our lives. We should vote. We should be engaged. Don't trust the system over Jesus. That's what I'm saying. There's a warning. I'll take it. That's for Jesus. But anyhow, there's a warning here to those who teach. There's a warning here to me, to you, if you think you can teach. If you're going to sit in a living room and lead some friends or in a coffee shop or in a youth group or in a children's ministry, there's a warning. Do not assume you know what God is saying to others if you are not committed to seeking Scripture daily for yourself right? Would you trust someone to teach you something they don't live and study? Would you go to your buddy's house, who's a carpenter, and go, hey, so I've got this weird lump. Can you check it out? <laughs> if you've done that, please don't tell me your story later. Please. and Please don't show me any lumps, just for the record, all right? You're like, I got this. You're like, no. Okay, so anyhow. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Here, remember his ifs? He's always leaving room like, you might do it right. You might also really mess it up. We know that the law is good, verse 8, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Let's pause in the middle of that verse. Let's talk about this for a second. The law in its simplest term. Now, the law in its completion is the first five books of the Old Testament. The law, the Torah law, right? All of it. Remember who it was written to? It was written to a nation as they were forming a nation. It was a theocracy to be led by God. Didn't turn out well. They've been disobedient ever since, but that's who it was written to. There are things that are particular to Judaism that are not the same for us today. But there's also the fact that Jesus came and fulfilled all of it and calls us to live inside the gospel today. So there is that, But still, the Ten Commandments is a good place to start. And nobody thinks, well, because Jesus fulfilled the law, we're totally cool with murder and theft. Right? I hope. Okay. Please agree with that one at least. All right? So we don't think that because Jesus has fulfilled it, that it all disappears. Right? That there are still basics of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Right? To take another life another person who bears the image of God in them, flawed as it may be, believer, non-believer, whatever, to do that, right, there's a penalty to that. To understand that what someone else has that you do not have, to spend your time coveting that, is going to lead to the emptiness inside your life. What you're really doing is saying, God, I don't trust you with what you've given me, and I can't be complete unless I get that new watch that Rob's wearing. I don't even think he has it on, but I know he's getting one. So anyhow, it's a safe bet. (laughs) The law is still the law. Here's what he says. The law is not for what you might think it's for. So let's just look at Paul in his own words. Romans 3 says this. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, meaning God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's the purpose of the law. To give you a framework to go, have you done all this yet? No. Okay. That's the point. To show you that you're flawed. To show you that you've broken the law. Have you loved God perfectly? Have you loved others perfectly? That's how Jesus sums it up, right? Do you take a day and set it aside for God? No. Okay. Sabbath. Out. Right? Idolatry. Yep. Struggle with that. Out. Right? Whatever. Maybe you haven't killed somebody. Maybe you have, but they... Whatever it is, is to look at yourself and say, here's what God has called me to, and I don't measure up all the way. And especially before coming to faith, like, okay, I just missed the mark, right? Paul goes on, Romans 8. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Let me summarize that for you. Since you couldn't keep the law, and don't keep the law, and choose not to keep, when I say that, God's law, right, perfectly, since you couldn't and choose not to, Jesus came and did it. And in Christ, we are set free from the idea that if I can do all this, then I I get to be with God, and and he says, but you can't, because you haven't, and you won't, and you don't. But Jesus did. Jesus did. That's the good news, right? So that in Christ, we are not defined by our failures and our worst decisions, but in Christ, we are defined by Christ's victory over the law. But the law exists to show us that we're broken and we need Jesus. That's what the law exists for. Last one, Romans 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone believes. Your righteousness, if you are in Christ, your righteousness comes from Christ. Not from keeping the law, even after you come to faith. You still can't keep all the rules. You still can't do it. Let's just be honest. We still don't even try most of the time. Christ becomes our righteousness. In Christ, we are righteous. And through his spirit, we become more like him. But it's not about us measuring up. It's about the fact that Jesus already measured up. And that in him, we have new life. That's the gospel message. It's not just forgiveness and then someday heaven. It's about today. It's about being transformed in Christ. Let's we'll start back at verse 8. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, slavers, liars, perjurers, and Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's like, in case I missed something, here you go. Whatever else, he says, right? In accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Here's what I said earlier. I want to say it again. This is a list of some sins that the Ephesian church is struggling with. This isn't supposed to be a comprehensive list. It's not even supposed to be the worst things. It's just a common list of what they're struggling with. When he writes to the, to the Corinthians, he's got a list, and he lists in their gossip. It's not like if you have someone who murders people on one side of you, and you got someone who gossips on the other side of you. You're not saying they're equal. You definitely like this neighbor better. You just don't share secrets, right? We're not saying that there isn't inherent risk. Nobody's saying, oh, it's, you know, you gossip, same thing as a pedophile. Nobody's saying that. He's using examples, But then the church today turns around and selects some of these examples and then hammers people with them. Never selecting the example you struggle with always with the example somebody else struggles with. He's just giving them a list. Here's a part of the list. Here's a relevant part of a list that your church is struggling with. That's what he says. And there's some things in there that we definitely don't want. And there's some things in there that You know, I'd rather have somebody lie, you know, than enslave somebody. But they're all what God calls us not to do. And this list, again, isn't the Ten Commandments regurgitated. It's examples. All just to show us, like, okay, so I've got a couple of these. I don't have a couple of these. Okay, same thing. I'm guilty if I if I if I'm not everything God calls me to. I'm guilty of everything God calls me to. I use this a lot until some of you give me a better example. I'm going to keep using it. You don't get to call yourself a vegan if you're going to go get in and out today. (laughs) It's not vegan plus bacon. It's not. You eat bacon, you're not a vegan. That's just the rule. You got to keep it all, or you're not it. God says you got to do it all, or you're broken and in need of a savior. And no matter what it is you fall short of, you need Jesus equally. You don't get to look and go, well, my sin's this one. It's cool. Yours is really bad. You don't get to do that. You're just guilty. Be guilty. Understand that. No, that's why Jesus came. That's why the gospel. There are modern versions of this dependence on the law. Christians today, in our world, in our country, here, are trying to legislate morality. And, and Christians exist on both sides of the political aisle, and they're trying to legislate it in different ways. Christianity did a, a victory lap after the Supreme Court decision. I'm glad the Supreme Court decision hapt, happened, but it's not going to change the heart of anyone. It's it's You can't... Make a rule that fixes people's broken hearts. When I say broken, I mean sinful hearts. You can't legislate morality and faithfulness to God. But we keep trying to do it. The right to, uh, of, of, of the, the inherent dignity of a life. Marriage, you can't define things with a law. You just can't. You won't, you can define them. You will never change a person's heart. Jesus must transform a heart. So he gives a list. There's just a list of ways that they're struggling. We could make our own list today. Here's a note for you on the screen. The gospel redeems and restores. Jesus didn't die so you could live in obedience to rules. Jesus died to forgive your failures and empower you to live a new life in the resurrected living Jesus. He didn't die to make you a rule keeper. He died to change what's inside of you that is broken. You, me, all of us together, no matter what's broken. To give us new life. The resurrection is all about new life. The ascension and pouring out of his spirit on the church is all about empowering us to be new. Not to keep the rules, to be new. That's why when we're reading in Romans, he said you're free from the law of sin and death. You're free now in Christ towards righteousness. Verse 12, we'll look at some application here as we wrap this up. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul says. I'm just going to use my life. Most of you know my story. So I'm glad he called me into ministry and saw me to be faithful enough for ministry. But that didn't happen at birth or before I came to faith. That happened here, right? He says, because before that, and I'm just going to use my life, because before that, I was drug addicted and, and crime and prison and gangs. And before that, I was this, but he showed me mercy. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. He actually persecuted Christians. He was killing Christians when Jesus blinded him and called him to follow Jesus. So no matter who you are, what you've done, you should feel pretty comfortable with Paul. Transformation I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. Notice it's not his actions, it's not his behaviors that were his problem, it was his unbelief. He didn't believe in Jesus. And so he was persecuting Christians thinking he was glorifying God. We sin because we don't believe. Belief changes behavior. Behavior modification only lasts so long. You can only white-knuckle it for so long. And your heart will come out. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He caused me to be different inside. I then began to live differently. Then he says, He's grateful that he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. We're not who we are today by our own efforts. We are who we become because of the gospel, because of Jesus. If you're trying really hard, you might actually be trying too hard. You may need to learn how to submit to Jesus in the gospel rather than struggle and fight and try so much. Verse 15, he says, this saying is trustworthy and Deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul recognizes his sin. We talk a lot about sin. That's why we have a small building, not a big building, probably, maybe. I don't know. It's much easier if we did a three-point series on how Jesus wants to make you wealthy. Like a lot more people show up, right? But here's what Paul knows. Paul knows from a right view of his own sin, he will worship God. That, with a clear view of our need for a Savior, we will then walk into salvation differently. When we understand how desperate our need is, we understand the magnitude of love that God, our Savior, gives us. See, if we think we're all just pretty good people, then salvation's pretty small. When we recognize that we're all desperately sinful and broken, and there's nothing we can do to fix it, then Jesus becomes bigger. Our faith becomes bigger. The change that God makes becomes greater. See, the gospel has come to give you new life. Whoever you are, walking with Jesus for 80 years, still wants new life for tomorrow. Not committed to following Jesus yet? This is what it's about. It's about new life. It's about changing from the inside out that Jesus... By the very spirit of God will transform you. That he entered into this world and lived the life that you and I are called to live, but we don't. And he did it to trade his life for ours. That he did so on a cross. He was nailed to a cross for our sin. He died to cover our sin, to forgive us. He rose from the grave to give us new life. His ascension showing it's complete and pouring out his spirit on us. That we can live this life. Different no matter what this life looks like. And then the ultimate hope is that he will one day return and transform this into what it was created to be. But the joy of our faith is that we get to live in it every day. That we get to be ongoing, ongoingly transformed. I hope we don't have any English teachers in here. Changing all the time, whatever that is in English. That we would live new, older, better lives, following Jesus more until his return, and we could tell others about the grace and mercy and peace we've found in Jesus. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might de- display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I feel like that's why, that's why God chose me for ministry, because there was better candidates, let's just be honest but that God could be held high, not me. That his power could be displayed in Paul and me and you. Verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. In the middle of the gospel, Paul can't just help himself. He just kind of makes a statement of worship. And that's what we're to do. When God speaks to us, our response should be worship. Then we should then lift our eyes up above us, above all of us, above our own struggles, our own inadequacies, our own iniquities. Then we just lift our eyes up to the God who changes lives. To the very gospel that is given freely to all. All who come receive that transformation in Jesus. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band back up. And this is not the time where you now leave because the message is over. This is the time we get to echo Paul to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. I'm going to ask you guys to stand as we close in prayer. And would you just contemplate in your hearts as we move into worship right now, how do you get to bring the king of ages, the immortal, invisible, and only God, honor and glory Starting now, forever, and Paul says, Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We are here because of you. We would not be here without you. There is nothing we can do. But you, in your grace, in your mercy, and your love have done it for us. And so, Jesus, we are forever grateful. Let us always show up here desiring to learn how where we are not like you and be called to be like you. Let us never show up here hoping that other people will hear that very thing they need to hear and miss that this is for us. Help us to hear your word and become more like you. We are your people. We gather together to become more like you. And we need the people in the room in order for us to do that. So, Jesus, lead us to that, please. Let our hearts cry out with worship for you. Let us learn, even if we don't like to sing, let us learn. How do we say the words or contemplate the words or whatever it might be that we can do in this moment to give you glory and honor? It says we're going to do that forever. Glory and honor forever. Amen. Let us learn how to start that today. That we are made new in your gospel, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray.